Thank you for that beautiful, beautiful song, that offering to God in music. Well, for the next three weeks, I'm going to be addressing the idea of loving the brethren. Very apropos for a brethren church. We're going to be talking about loving the brethren. Today, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and and looking at specifically at brothers, strangers, and prisoners. Next week, we're going to look at verse 4 and how that relates to purity and marriage. And then the week after, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6, how it relates to money, all in the context of loving the brethren. So let's read the word first. Let's open up the book, Hebrews 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Please stand with me if you are able. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is a gift to us, and we pray that you would teach us this day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, people try to show their allegiance to Jesus in a lot of different ways. Uh, Using things like fish and crosses, bumper stickers... Hats, t-shirts, big Bibles. Francis Schaeffer said, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They have worn marks in the lapels of their coats, hung chains about their necks, even had special haircuts. But there is a much better sign. It's a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. And that mark is love among Christians. Love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, I am nothing. Nothing. Now, symbols are empty if we don't have love. Hebrews chapters 1 through 12 contains some very strong encouragement to believe in Jesus, to listen to God speaking through Christ, to come all the way to faith in Christ and to stay there. Now, chapter 13 builds upon the foundation of chapters 1 through 12 with some very practical encouragement and application regarding living the Christian life. In chapter 13, verse 1, the primary thing that the Hebrews were to do was to love their fellow believers. To let love of the brethren continue. To show brotherly love. They were in the family of God, and so they were to love their brothers and their sisters. Uh, The Greek word is Philadelphia. That's the Greek word, Philadelphia. It comes from two words, philos, which uh, is the word for friends or beloved. It's one of the Bible words for love, uh, a love of friends. And also, the second word is adelphos, brother, brethren. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, we read this. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. Why were they to love the brothers? Because they had been born again by God. 
But that is the same word, Philadelphia, uh, love of the brethren. Now, in 1 John, there's a lot in 1 John about love. 1 John uses agape, agapeo, and uh, God's love. But interestingly, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, you see both words. In fact, in the New Testament, these words can be used interchangeably. And here is what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now, as to love of the brethren, as to Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love agape one another. So you see Philadelphia and agape both in the same uh, context. But either way, loving the brethren was their primary responsibility next to loving God. They were being reminded to not let uh, it stop, to let love of the brethren continue. They were to make sure that it wasn't going to be cut. Uh, Due to the problems facing the early church, including persecution, including uh, people leaving the faith, including just plain old human selfishness, uh, their family bonds were in danger of being broken. That's why they are told to let, let love of the brethren continue. Not start, but continue. To abide or remain is what continue means. And they were to make sure it didn't happen, make sure they didn't get cut. Now, next to loving God, loving the brethren was their primary responsibility, their primary calling. But when we think about love, a lot of times we think feelings, don't we? We think emotions. But this brotherly love is not an emotion. It's action. It's not feelings of goodwill toward one another. The New Testament emphasis focuses on acting upon the truth. See, it's a call to meet one another's needs in a very real and tangible way. So real love, and if you, if you look through the scriptures, real love is always shown by concrete actions. It's costly as well. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, we read, By this we know love, because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to also to lay down our lives for the brethren. That costs something. And then we read this. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? True love costs. And it's seen in real action. Brotherly love means real sacrifice for one another. It it costs. And if you think about the early church, it had its share of problems. But there were, there were those in the church, many in the church, who didn't count anything that they owned as belonging to them. They, they saw it as belonging to God, and so they could share it, share it freely. They didn't cling to their lives and their possessions. They had a new identity. Jesus clung to them, and therefore, he had reoriented them with a new value system around unseen spiritual realities versus temporary pleasures. Brotherly love. It means real sacrifice, and it also means that we give of ourselves, and when we do that, it could hurt. It's, it's active response to present needs, but be there, be there relational or material needs. If you see a need, meet it. Have you ever had someone give to you like that? In such a way 
that they were so committed to the fellowship that they, were, they gave to you either relationally or materially in such a way that it actually hurt them. They, they actually lost uh, because they, were, they, they had something and they gave it to you and so they weren't able to use it. But they gained far more, we know. But God, some would call that unwise. You know, don't give to someone when you can't afford to give to them. And take care of yourself. See, God calls it loving the brethren. Loving the brethren. Francis Schaeffer said this, uh, evangelism is a calling, but not the first calling. Building congregations is a calling, but not the first calling. A Christian's first call is to return to the first commandment to love God, to love the brotherhood, and then to love one's neighbor as himself. See, we are to show love as an essential part of our witness, uh, but most importantly, because God is love, and we are called to be um, God-like in the world. The Holy Spirit said it through the Apostle John in a very challenging way. In fact, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. What we're going to read is not light. It's not based upon sentimental feelings. It's action based on truth. And it's absolutely important. It's non-negotiable in our relationship with God and its overflow into other people's lives. First John chapter 4, and starting at verse 7. Songs have been sung. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We sing that song. Verse 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. There was a cost involved. And verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the sacrifice or the propitiation of our, for our sins, the appeasing uh, sacrifice. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Wonderful. But look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, skip down to verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. I don't want to be a liar. But the scriptures tell me that if I say I love God, and I hate my brother... I'm a liar. It says, For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. What, I'm, what, what the scriptures are saying to you and to me is if we say we love God and we hate people, we don't love God. And this is the commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should also love his brother. Those are tough words. Those aren't light words. Those aren't sentimental words. Those are words pointing to action based upon truth and they're non-negotiable for believers, for those claiming to believe in Jesus. 
Now, uh, the verses that follow, verse 1, you know, it's interesting. Let love of the brethren continue can just sound like almost trite to us because we throw love around as a word that doesn't mean a lot at times. I love you. Oh, really? <laughs> Show me. Um, verse, verse 1 lays out the idea, and verses 2 and 3 are some specific examples of brotherly love. You want to you wanna love your brothers? Well, here's one. Verse 2 says, Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Be hospitable to strangers, especially Christian ones. So what's hospitality? The Greek word is uh, philoxenia. Love of strangers, literally. Don't neglect to love strangers. Uh, Among Jews and Gentiles alike, hospitality ranked as a high virtue that was to be cultivated. In the Greco-Roman culture, it, it involved taking people in for the night taking people into your home for the evening. Now, I've, I've met people on, on, uh, where you're driving, you see someone that is in need, and for a split second, I, I think, well, I should take them back to my home and put them up for the night. And the next split second is, no, they might hurt you, they might rob you, me, or they might do something. Uh, it, it, no, it won't work. And the thought goes away. But in the Greco-Roman culture, It involved taking people into your house for the night, maybe even for two nights, and feeding them and giving them food when they left. See, in the ancient world, it was expensive to stay overnight in an inn, and also inns were places of ill repute. Uh, They had bad reputations. Bad stuff happened there. So people were especially grateful for hospitality shown by fellow believers when they came to a certain town. And so the hospitality was to be an active application of love. Taking care of their basic needs, making them feel welcome, not making them feel like an outsider, making them feel um, included rather than excluded. And it wasn't an option, it was a responsibility. That was in context. In the New Testament, Christian leaders were expected to be hospitable. One of the marks to be a leader in the church. And the rest of the body was, uh, was, in, was expected to follow suit. Be hospitable to strangers. The main idea for us, bringing people into our homes. Bringing people into our homes. How many people can, can describe the inside of your home? I don't care if you know, oh, my house is nice enough to show people. That, that, that's not the point here. Who can, te- who can describe the inside of your house? Who's been there? The idea is bringing people into our homes. Now, there is a danger involved. There was a danger involved back in that time, as there is today. The possibility of free room and board was a temptation for those who were unscrupulous to pose as Christians, to pretend like they were Christians to get a free, a free meal and free lodging. And so there, there were some general rules of thumb in, in that day of how to detect imposters. Here's what it was. They could stay one or two days. If they stayed three days, they were false. They were imposters. You could send them with a loaf of bread or some food when they left, or even if you chose to give them some money. But if they asked for money, they were an imposter. General rule of thumb. Freeloaders were not to be trusted. But the idea of showing hospitality to strangers is uh, taking people into our homes. 
Now, verse 2 concludes with words that have confused many. It says, because by this, some have entertained angels unaware. They had met angels traveling incognito, disguised as people who were sent by God to deliver a message to them. Now, for Jews living in Bible times, the supreme example of hospitality was Abraham. When he uh, showed hospitality to the three strangers that came to him at Mamre. It's, 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 in, he, it's in Genesis 18, 1 through 5. Uh, in the midst of, of showing the hospitality, he found that one was actually God himself. They were angels, and one was God himself. And when two of them went down to check out Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, God spoke to Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a son, the son of promise, next year. He got that message from God. That was the supreme example. Now, the way I've heard this verse taught in the past is, is something like this. And I think it's the way most people take it. It's the idea that we better be hospitable because it might be an angel we're dealing with. Like, ooh, better be nice because it might be an angel. I don't believe that's the meaning of this verse, of this statement. I don't, I don't think it's an encouragement to expect that, that uh, those that we show hospitality to will be supernatural beings disguised as travelers. Why do I think that? It was a really uncommon occurrence. Only four times in Scripture can you find a place where God sent an angel incognito. Now, angels appeared to people, but they were angels. <laughs> but only four times in Scripture can I find a place where where God sent an angel dressed up like a person to send a message. It, the one was Abraham and, and Sarah in Genesis 18. We've also got Lot in Genesis 19. We've got Gideon in, in the book of Judges, as well as Manoah, Samson's father, in the book of Judges as well. So it was a rare occurrence. It's probably not going to happen to us. So what is it? I believe it's this. It is an assurance... That God will bless whatever offering we make to him by showing hospitality. And that at times, the people we show hospitality to will be messengers of God to us and will give us a greater blessing than we give to them. From God. That God will bless whatever offering we make to him by showing hospitality. And that at times, these people will be messengers of God to us bring in an even greater blessing than we give to them. See, to meet an angel could be a wonderful thing and a very scary thing. Um, but God's family, the church, is full of people whom angels are sent to minister to. The person sitting next to you, probably not an angel. I can almost guarantee that when I know almost anyone, everyone in here. But I'll tell you this. Well, I didn't mean it that way. You can take it that way if you want. I did not mean it that way. See, people cannot be angels, and angels cannot be people, even though angels can travel incognito. Well, yeah, oh, so-and-so's an angel. Yeah, that's a figure of speech. Come on, give me a break. Now, here's the thing. The person sitting next to you is not an angel. They're someone better. They're a person made in the image of God. And, and in the church, it's filled with people that angels are sent to minister to who will inherit eternal salvation. 
So someone much better than an angel sitting next to you and maybe probably living next door to you too. Now, in addition to that general exhortation in verse 1 to love the brethren, and you've got that very specific encouragement to show hospitality to strangers, they were to be active in doing something else too. To remember the prisoners. Literally, a prisoner means one bound with chains, one tied. Prisoners were not treated well in the first century. They were not always fed. (laughs) Um, Often they had to depend upon friends and family for their basic human needs. So what Christians could do in those days is they would go to the prison and minister to their fellow believers who were in prison, bring them food, bring them clothes, bring them, you know, medicine to help their wounds and and they could console them face to face they could pray with them right there and then so remembering the prisoners was not just in the thought it was in the action and then to remember just literally means to keep them present in your thoughts when you're not with them those early christians were to keep their imprisoned friends constantly in mind as if they were right there with them see the hebrew community had already shown very practical help and sympathy to those who were mistreated for their faith look at hebrews 10 32 remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They'd already done that. Now they're encouraged to keep remembering their responsibilities as Christians. Don't forget. Remember them. All the Christians that were written uh, in in this letter to the Hebrews, they hadn't all suffered imprisonment for their faith. Some of them had. But they were to suffer right along with those who did and those who were. They needed to have the capacity to empathize with those who were in trouble. Put themselves in the shoes of another. Walk in their, in their shoes. In 1 Corinthians 12 we read, if, if one member of the body suffers, all the members suffer. They were to help those who were ill-treated. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and, and those who are ill-treated because you yourselves are in the body. According to Romans 12, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice, we're to weep with those who weep. They were to remember that they too were in the body. They were in the body of Christ together and they too were liable to be persecuted and to be ill-treated and to be imprisoned for their faith. And they were to be so concerned with those who were suffering for their faith that every mistreatment, every slap, every punch to the face were to be like they were getting hit too. For us, we're to remember persecuted believers, both here and around the world. I got a big question for you. Why doesn't brotherly love in the New Testament sense happen more in the body of Christ? Why doesn't it happen so much? Well, I believe it's because we've run into some roadblocks and let them cloud the the, the way and hinder the flow. So what are the roadblocks to Philadelphia? (laughs) Roadblocks to Philadelphia. What are they? 
Well, I've identified three that I wrestle with. And I'm guessing many of you deal with them too. The first one that I deal with is the gap. The gap. Not the store. <laughs> We're all living with the gap. The distance, sometimes quite huge, between what we say we believe and how we really live. Between doctrine and life, between theory and practice. I say I believe one thing and I do the opposite. See, everyday Christianity is what God wants from us, not, not Sundays. Not just Sundays. And how we treat people cannot be separated from what we believe. Our lives have got to reflect our theology and our doctrine. See, life's not meant to be divided into two parts, the sacred and the secular. The Christian and, and then the rest of the world. But see, what happens in the church today is not meant to be. And guys like me perpetuate it. Pastors perpetuate it. Uh, here's what happens. We, we take life in the spirit and then um, life in daily living and cut them in two and throw them in opposite directions. But see, life in the spirit and the life we live daily are meant to be integrated. They're not to be cut in two and, and thrown in different directions. One writer put it this way, when Christ-following truth is no longer spoken in street language, when it is no longer directed at street life, and when it no longer challenges men and women and boys and girls to live as Christ followers in those streets, there is no longer a chance for real-world faith. People are tamed, learning how to act with deafness inside the religious institutions. People are tamed, learning how to live within the context of the church. And it's divorced from the rest of everyday life. They do not learn how to faithfully live in the real world. A lot of times guys like me are to blame. The first few verses of Hebrews 13 show us that true Christian commitment involves living uh, for Christ where the rubber meets the road in daily living. The reality of our relationship with God will either be helped or that it will be hindered by our interaction with other people. So if we're going to live authentically as believers, then it needs to be in crowded malls and on dusty sidewalks. It needs to be at kitchen tables and family rooms. It needs to be in bedrooms and break rooms and living rooms and restaurants and offices. That's the, those are the places we need to confess Christ. Those are the places that we need to do good to all and share with others. Basically, life in Christ must affect our daily living. We need more, you know, Monday through Saturday Christianity. The gap has got to close. So we're living with the gap. Now, there's also the issue of profiling. By the way, I will say that these I put in descending order from the least troublesome to the worst. And so if you think the gap is an issue, how about the issue of profiling? What do I mean by that? Why am I suspicious of everyone else's motives? Why do I profile people before I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, sh I'll help them or share the gospel with them? Oh, that person, mm -mm, they won't fit. 
they won't fit at grace. Or, oh, that person, they, they won't, they, uh, no, no, it's not going to work. They look different. They act different. They smell different. Whatever. Why do I avoid contact with people that I don't think would fit in the fellowship? Because it's more comfortable to hang out with people who look like me, talk like me, walk like me, live like me. But see, people can see right through pride and pretense. Right through it. Remember when Jesus uh, spoke of, um, of Nathaniel? He said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. People can see right through guile. So what happens? Many people run from the church and run from Christians. Like, if that's the way it's going to be, I don't want to go there. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you saw people on a Sunday, uh, this isn't grace, but we can talk about how it is somewhere else. If, if you see people walking, uh, playing in the park, let's say, on a Sunday, and they're all having a great time, and then you, then you look at a church, and the people are kind of trudging in, like they got to go there, and then which one would you go to? I go, let's go play at the park. And then, then, and then they'll say, well, I don't want to go there because they're just going to make me feel worse than I already do because they look so good and I'm not feeling so hot. So people, um, they run from the church and Christians not because of Jesus but because of me and you. That's what, they run, that's what they're running from. They're not running from Jesus most of the time. Now, did people who were in need or down and out, did they run from Jesus? Well, they, they were attracted to him like, uh, like metal to a magnet. They were, they, the most holy attracted the most unholy. See, we'll never know how far-reaching an act of kindness a simple act of love might go, might reach. You know, doing what Hebrews 13 says is going to identify us as those in league with Jesus. And not doing so just might show otherwise. Go to Matthew 25. Let's, let's remember the words of Jesus. Matthew 25 you remember what Jesus said? Starting at verse 31. He said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will gather before Him and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, For I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me. In prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and said, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? When were you... Uh, a stranger and we invited you in and naked and clothed you when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you and the king will answer and say to him truly i say to you to the extent that you did it unto the least of did it unto one of these brothers of mine even the least of them you did it to me
We've got to remember what Jesus did. How Jesus lived, how Jesus walked, how Jesus talked. That's what God wants to do in us. He wants to make us more like Jesus. And then there's one more subject. It's the subject of getting offended. Getting offended. We get offended easily. Put off by what someone does to us or says to us. And our response breaks any bond of love that may have existed. We do it with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends, with our relatives, with our neighbors, with strangers even. To be unoffendable. Unoffendable. To be so at home with Jesus and and so comfortable in our own skin that we can put up with inconvenient circumstances. That we can put up with difficult people. To have the strength of character to roll with the punches. Accept from the hand of God everything that he allows into our life. The rude and obnoxious. The persistent and impatient. The loud and unlovely. Even the people that bug us so much because they're so much like us. I want to be unoffendable. To look beyond the offensive behavior to the person who maybe just wants to be noticed. To be unmoved to anger, but moved with compassion when I see someone in need and I I have something I can give them. See, God wants us to transform our hearts and our minds to be like Jesus. Do what he did, to walk in his steps. And that cannot happen if we're easily offended or we're holding on to offenses or keeping score. It won't happen. If we're doing that. See remembering what Jesus did. Should blow up all of our misconceptions. Just knock them from our hands. See if that doesn't shake us from. From our self-centeredness. And our stranglehold on relationships. Nothing will. See I profile. I nurse offenses. To protect one person. And one person only. Me and my little kingdom. See, when God wants me to live for a kingdom bigger than me, for his rule, for his glory. And I'll tell you this, if the, if the spirit of God is doing in your heart what he's doing in mine, all I can say is watch out Orange and the surrounding communities because we are going to change. We are going to be different because God got a hold of our hearts. I think a good prayer for us is this. Lord, um, we know you want us, you, we, we know you want to use us. We know you want to use us, so we're available to you with no strings attached as you see fit to move us, uh, to speak through us, to use us for your glory in any way, even if it might be misunderstood. See, we are always on assignment with God. Always. And the question is really this. Will we be unencumbered And alert to the needs and opportunities that God puts in our path. Or will we be too weighed down with worldly concerns to even notice? That's the question.